This morning, we're going to be looking at the cross of Christ. And it's been a, a real blessing as we've walked through the book of Matthew to be able to slow down and look at some of these sections of the text. Um, I think we, we're guilty sometimes as a culture of, of sanitizing many things because we're, we're uniquely a culture that doesn't like to deal with death in person, but revels in death on a screen. So often so that death and suffering uh, have almost become fantasy and escapism for many of us. But there's a, a deep reality to the cross of Christ that we have to gaze at and look at this morning. I mean, if you took a first century person and you brought them into James Avery, it, it would be whack. They would be like, what is going on with all of this cross jewelry? Would be strange. To Jews in the first century, there wasn't a differentiation between death on a tree, hanging or crucifixion. It's all incredibly shameful, God-dishonoring ways to die. And so this morning, we just have to look up and see Christ on the cross. And the reality of Jesus' resurrection, the next part of the narrative, should not cause us to minimize his sufferings or his agony on the cross. We can't gloss over this difficult portion of the text to get to the resurrection. John Calvin said, In the cross of Christ, as in splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. And so the first thing I want us to do this morning is to just see what Matthew is highlighting in his crucifixion account. Because Matthew doesn't give us any of the gory details. This isn't Mel Gibson's version. He doesn't talk about the hammer or the nails or the blood. He highlights the mockeries. First, in chapter 27, the Roman company mocks Jesus. Remember, they put the crown of thorns on his head, the red robe, they put a staff in his hand and mock him like they're bowing down to Caesar. And they mock him with the sign that they hang above the cross. This is Jesus, king of the Jews, all the while, basically a casino is operating at the feet of this suffering man as they cast lots for his clothing. And then the criminals on either side of him mock him and yell insults at him. And the chief priests show up to the crucifixion. And they say this in Matthew 27, 42. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. But remember what Jesus said earlier. The only sign that they are going to get is the sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the earth. In Matthew's narrative, when Jesus first speaks from the cross, there's more mockery and more confusion. Jesus quotes the first verse of Psalm 22. And these might be the most chilling words ever spoken in the history of our world. He cries out in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, don't, don't miss this. This is Jesus, the second 
person of the Trinity, the eternal son, the word of God, he spoke at the moment of creation. His voice was the voice that said, let there be light. But at this point, at this time, in this moment, when the light of the world opens his mouth, it's nothing but darkness around him. The people around him are so confused that they think maybe he's calling out for Elijah because the first part of that Aramaic phrase sounds like the name Elijah. And the Jews at the time thought of Elijah as like the patron saint of lost causes. And they thought that Jesus was a lost cause. So he's calling out for Elijah. Scripture should interpret Scripture here as far as what's happening. Paul summarizes this moment in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, God made the sinless Jesus to be sin so that we might be forgiven of our sins. So what Jesus says is what he's really experiencing. He is really experiencing being forsaken by the Father. Now the paradox here is that while this God-forsakenness is utterly real, the unity of the Godhead, the Trinity, was even at this moment unbroken. This was the first and the only time that Jesus spoke and the response of heaven was silence. Because for us not to experience the God-forsakenness that we deserve, Jesus had to be forsaken by the Father on our behalf. This is for us, this moment. It's interesting to note here that in Islam, you know, they see Jesus as a great prophet. But they make sure in the Quran to get Jesus out of the suffering because they believe, Islam teaches that it's inappropriate that a major prophet of God should come to such a disgusting and shameful end. But one writer responds to that. He says this, New Testament Christianity, however, throws Jesus right into the cesspool of sin and says, here is a savior for sinners. Here is the God-man sent to save godless men. Here's a real Savior for the real sins of the world. He's absorbed the wrath, all of it. So in this moment, look at him. Don't look away, but look at his suffering face because he's all that you and I have. His death can wipe away the sin of the despot in the third world nation who beheads and tortures the innocent and the kid in high school who mercilessly mocks his classmates. I'm going to start to quote the Apostle John here. And he says in his gospel to quote John the Baptist, for those who are here and cheated on last year's taxes, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For those who lust after their neighbor, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the mom or the dad that screamed at their kids and scared them this week, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the man here who wrecked his marriage with his passivity, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the prideful jerk who batters his spouse with an iron fist, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the one who had too much to drink this week and lives in addiction, look at him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the one who committed adultery and devastated their spouse, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the one who lives in depression and wants to die. For the idolatrous person who puts their hope in either political party. For the pornography addicted. For the cynics who doubt God's goodness. For the money lovers, the greedy, the violent wretches among us, for the disillusion and the doubting, for those who hate their neighbor. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is not a show. This isn't a half-hearted extension of God's hand into the world. This is a full-bodied realization, the actual body of the Son of God crushed so that we might be spared. Octavius Winslow summed this up. He said, who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for their envy, but the Father for love. And even in this moment of darkness and agony on the cross, Jesus is fully in control. He's not just the risen king. He's also the crucified king. He's sovereign over his sufferings. Look at verse 50. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his Spirit. So this is the moment that his heart ruptures or his lungs asphyxiate or he loses too much blood to live. What does he do? He hands his father his last breath as a gift, the full and final payment for the sins of his people. And in John's gospel, he says the second to last thing that Jesus says is it is finished. Better translated, the debt is paid in full. So there's not a drop or an ounce that you can add to the salvation that Jesus offers. And I realize that faith can be challenging, right? Christians can be hypocrites. Unbelief can so easily creep in. But the good news this morning is that our hope in life and death is not based on how well we behave or how well the people who follow Jesus around us. Our hope in life and death is the sacrificial death of Jesus. That's it. Full and final, sufficient. Another way to say that, Tim Keller says this really well, it's not the strength of your faith but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. God the Father, at the moment of Jesus' death, displayed the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work, meaning the verification that Christ is the only way to him at the moment of his death. Matthew reports on this. This is God's exclamation point, his acceptance of Jesus's sacrifice. There are three signs that happen at the moment of Christ's death. This is where heaven thunders with victory. Look at the text with me. 
the first sign, supernatural sign, the torn veil of the temple. And I, I echo one commentator who says this, I want you to see and hear and feel the divine fireworks set off by Jesus's death. Look at verse 51. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. So there were two massive curtains that hung in the temple. One that separated the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was that the high priest would enter once a year to atone for the sins of the people. And there was another curtain out in front of the temple that separated where the Jews would worship from the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles would worship God in Israel. Matthew doesn't say which one was torn. The outside one would have been quite a spectacle for the people of Israel. The inside one would have been quite a shock to Caiaphas, right? (laughs) At the end of all of these fake trials and execution of this Uh, rebel Messiah, then he sees the actual curtain torn in two. All that we know about this second temple, this is Herod's temple, not uh, Solomon's temple built in scripture, is that it was a little bit bigger, which means that these curtains were about five stories tall, four inches thick. Uh, A historian who was Jewish at the time wrote that they would have to tie ropes around horses to get them to actually pull this curtain apart because it was so heavy. And at the moment of Jesus' death, that thing split in half from top to bottom, a five-story curtain. What does that mean? Well, the first thing it means is that the temple is now a desolate house. The priests continue to labor there, or some of them, because Acts reports that many of the priests and Pharisees and Sadducees became believers But some of them continued to labor on in the sacrifices and atoning work of the Old Testament in vain for 40 years until the temple was destroyed. But this is judgment that God was pronouncing. He was saying that the true high priest has appeared. The real lamb of God has been sacrificed once and forever. There's no more need of an earthly high priest. There's no more need for an earthly mercy seat. No more sprinkling of bull's blood. No more offering of incense. Jesus' death brings final judgment to the temple. It's all over now. But it wasn't just a pronouncement of judgment. It's also an announcement of salvation. The temple veil was torn so that all the world could now be invited into the presence of God through faith in Jesus. The veil kept a distance between God and man, and now there's no more distance because the high priest that we have at this very moment that stands before the Father is no mere man. He's fully God and fully man. He's not some quivering Hebrew trying to remember the prayers and the right order of things or he'll be struck dead. He is the son of God living forever. So both the restrictions on access to God and the distinction between Jew and Gentile is now over. The the torn veil is an open door. Jesus kicked it down at the moment of his death. Now all people Jew and Gentile, young and old, male and female, pastors, non-pastors, can all obtain direct access to God 
by faith in Jesus. Hebrews 10 says it this way. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. The next supernatural sign is the second half of verse 51. Matthew reports there was an earthquake and splitting of rocks. Now, John Piper says this, helps us think about this. The earth was shaken and rocks split by a sovereign earth controller and a powerful rock ruler. Ordinary human deaths don't shake the earth and split rocks, but God does. Rocks don't have a mind of their own. They do what God bids them to do, and they shook and they split. In other words, Matthew's trying to tell us something about the imminently physical world that we inhabit. The things that we consider firm and forever, the very foundations of the earth, are actually temporary and fragile compared to the atoning work of Jesus. That's incredibly good news. That the things that we see as so uh, long-lasting are actually just a blip in comparison to what Jesus has done. That means that what he did in those moments on the cross is more real and lasting than the actual physical world that we inhabit. Showing Jesus' total authority, control, and power over all of creation. And in case we missed what Matthew's trying to say, he gives us yet another example of what God is showing us about the material world. Look at verse 52. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. They entered the holy city, and they appeared to many. Now, for some of you, this may be the first time you've ever heard this. This is wild. Resurrections before Jesus' own resurrection. Why is Matthew talking about this before Easter morning? But here's what we can't do. We can't get hung up on this one detail. Matthew doesn't tell us which of the two curtains was torn, right? He also doesn't tell us who these people were. Were they Old Testament saints? Was it King David, Elijah? Who was it? Was it New Testament saints? Was it like John the Baptist, Jesus' father, Joseph? Did they resurrect for a day and then die at the end of Saturday? Uh, did they, were they young? Did they resurrect old like the day they took their last breath? Did they live another 20 years like perhaps we know Lazarus did and just live the rest of their life? We don't know. What Matthew's really trying to communicate here is that Jesus' death is a resurrecting death. The dead are revived by his dying. So as he passes from life to death, they pass from death to life. The point of this is to show the power of Jesus' death. I'll put this quote on the screen. It's helpful. So these saints go into the city appearing to many. And the word for appear can also mean 
to explain. So these people go into the city not to show off, but to explain that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and evil through his own resurrection and is making all things new and that you too can get in on the mid-history stroke of grace. It's available to all, secular and religious alike. The risen are proof that Jesus brings not just a new verdict, but a whole new day. They are walking gospel explanations. Note that Matthew doesn't say here, many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. He says, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That means that these were not immaterial spirits floating around Jerusalem like weirdos in the middle of the day. These were actual people with flesh and blood like you and me as a preview of what was going to happen on Easter morning. Another gospel explanation that so often after the resurrection of Jesus, the religious leaders and those who oppose Christianity would say, well, maybe it was just an immaterial resurrection. Maybe it was just his spirit that raised from the dead. Wrong. And Jesus gave a preview of it that day in Jerusalem when all of these dead people had new flesh and walked out of their tombs, just like he would two days later. The issue has always been for Matthew showing Jesus as king of the material universe. That's his point here. He uniquely puts the emphasis on Jesus' death as opening the tombs and giving life to our mortal bodies. So not only is Jesus' death strong enough to split the veil of the Holy of Holies, cause an earthquake, and crack giant rocks in half, but it's also strong enough to raise the dead, which is telling us, Matthew's telling us, if he can do all of this in the material universe, imagine what he can do to your soul. Imagine how powerful Jesus is over your life. Imagine what it looks like for Jesus to take your dead heart and give you a new heart. He is powerful enough to do that, and his atoning death is sufficient for that work. He can make you new. So we see in this moment, in a great commentary I've been in the last couple weeks, he says, the cross is not a cursed tree, but a fruit tree. It produces the first of those who have fallen asleep, from 1 Corinthians 15. Matthew's focus in his account of the crucifixion is eminently valuable to us as 21st century naturalists and materialists. The world thinks the cross is crazy. It always has. It always will. But for those of us who believe, it's our only hope for real sanity. It was a great miracle that Jesus walked on the water. It was a great miracle that Jesus fed the 5,000. It was an awesome miracle that Jesus opened the eyes of the blind and raised the dead. It's a great miracle that Jesus himself rose from the dead. But what I think Matthew's pointing us to and that we need to see this morning is the most miraculous non-miracle that Jesus stayed 
on the cross. He finished the work. I want you to see the new covenant worship service that happens in verse 54. Look at it with me. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly this man was the son of God. So at the foot of the cross, with the actual blood of Jesus on their hands, these Roman soldiers, their fear turns into a confession of belief. They confess the truth. You understand the, the power of this? Matthew's not reporting that it was, it was Jesus' mother or Mary Magdalene or, or the Apostle John or some other Christian or a Pharisee or a Sadducee. It's a hundred Roman soldiers quaking, realizing the signs, the darkness at noon, the earthquakes, and confessing the, the truth about Jesus. He is the Son of God. And so what I've been praying for this week is that the Spirit would give us a deeper appreciation of what happened on the cross that day. Because just like I said last week, what, what a tragedy it would be if we stopped being amazed by grace. Because in this moment, Jesus didn't call out for 12 legions of angels to rescue him. Instead, he, he took 20 billion demons and the unbearable weight of all of his people's sins. He crushed the head of the greatest demon, death, with his bloody heel. That's what happened on the cross. That's what we need to meditate and think about. The greatest miraculous non-miracle that Jesus stayed on the cross for love of his people and for the glory of he and the Father's plan of redemption. It's beautiful. So now, turn with me to Matthew 28. We're going to start with verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to visit, view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, another earthquake, <laughs> because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him, they became like dead men. The angel told the women, don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I've told you. So, departing quickly from the tomb, I love this, with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, 
greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. I'm going to tell you guys a quick story. I, I haven't finished my seminary degree yet, which may never happen now because I haven't taken classes in about six years. But I had some wonderful professors who really encouraged me and taught me a lot. They really mentored me and gave me a lot of, of great information and took me on a lot of great adventures. And one of those adventures involved walking through Times Square with a body bag in the middle of the day. Just bear with me here. Listen to this. One of those professors told me a while back, he said, the idea that Jesus' disciples snuck his dead body out of Jerusalem during Passover is like walking through Times Square with a corpse. People will notice. The disciples did not steal Jesus' body. Something else entirely different happened. Now, being the interesting young man that I was, I took that as a challenge to fly up there, to bring a film crew, because you have to document this, right? Why not? To buy a body bag from bodybags.com, which is a real thing. I just still can hardly believe that's a real thing. Have it shipped to my house. I'm sure I'm on some list now from Homeland Security. Pack that in my luggage, fly to Manhattan, go to the hotel, fill it with pillows, because for realism's sake, right? It's got to look like somebody's in the body bag. Hold a sign up that talks about this story that I just told and the, and the reality that something else happened to Jesus and that the resurrection of Jesus changes your life if you understand what happened on that day 2,000 years ago. And we walk through Times Square. This is post 9-11 Times Square, which is, it was, it was interesting. Do not recommend. But the point that I was attempting to make in all of this circus was what Tim Keller said. Uh, he says it really well. The issue on which everything stands is not whether or not you like Christianity or if it benefits you. The issue is whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. So when Jesus said in John's gospel, I am the resurrection and the life, he's claiming to be the source of both. There's no resurrection apart from Jesus, and there's no eternal life apart from Jesus. The lady that he's talking to in that account thought about the resurrection as a future event, and he was telling her, no, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. It's a person not a future event. No, Martha, your life is not some thing that just spun by God in the beginning and continues on through humans. I give life. I am the source of eternal life. And I'm still surprised, even this week as I read this narrative, and I see what Matthew captures as the first word out of the resurrected king of the cosmos. Hi. <laughs> No doubt with a smile. It's the most Jesus thing of Jesus to do, right? He didn't roar back from the dead and go directly to Caesar and kick his face in or, or triumph over Pilate or the, or the wicked Pharisees or the Sadducees or the other religious leaders. What does he do? 
He appears to two women who love him and were going to care for his dead body. That's the Jesus that we know. Two regular women who were there because of tradition and love for him. That's who he appears to. And he says, hello. And then, do not fear. It's me. Unbelievable. C.S. Lewis says it, said it this way in Narnia. He said, the king awoke and embraced the two daughters of Eve, announcing to them that the head of the serpent had finally been crushed. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of our hopes and desires. It really is. Think about what matters to you, what really deeply matters to you. If you were to throw out some words, you'd say things like love, justice, peace, security. If Jesus is alive, then real love, the kind of love we've been shown in Jesus, the love that our marriages and friendships are supposed to reflect is not a fleeting, temporary thing, but is a wellspring that will never run dry for all eternity. Real love lasts forever from our Savior, Jesus. What about justice? Well, he entered Jerusalem the first time in humility on a donkey, but like I talked about last week, next time he's going to rip open the heavens on a white horse to deal the final and authoritative judgment on every human soul. You and I desperately long for this. Our political systems and our ideals get so messed up because we want a Jesus in a human being and a political system and a governmental system, and it doesn't work. Only Jesus is worthy of giving the final righteous judgment. Think about what Jesus has been through. Jesus has been through a mock fake trial. Jesus has been abandoned by his friends. Jesus has been executed in a manner that Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be. Only slaves and non-Romans were allowed to be killed in that way. He knows what real justice doesn't look like. So we can trust him that he is just and what he will deliver in the end, he's going to render all accounts settled. We long for that. What about peace? Jesus says over and over again, the peace that I give to you is not the kind of peace that this world offers, but it's eternal. It's not circumstantial. It's not based on where you're at or what you're going through, but it's blood-bought and it's atoning. That's the kind of peace that I give you. What about security? To go to the Gospel of John again, he says in John 6, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this, are you, are you listening? He says, this is the will of God. This is it. That I should lose none of those he has given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. That's the kind of security that we have 
in Jesus. Look at Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's a promise. All things, all suffering, all sorrow, everything. That means that God wastes nothing. It's all for our eternal good and his glory. His perspective on good is eternal, and mine is not. I can only see what's right in front of me. So I don't always have the answers, and I can't explain why the car wrecks and the cancer and the tragedies are for my eternal good and his glory. I can't always see it, but I can trust him because he is alive. This is why I'm a Christian and not a follower of some other religious system because they're a waste of time. I can't visit the grave of Jesus of Nazareth and leave flowers like I can for every other religious and cult leader. Jesus didn't preach that there's a way to God and we just have to take his word for it because he's super special. He said, I am the way. You want to know the way? It's through me. I'm God's son. So Christianity then is not just simply another system. It's primarily a person. God revealed in Jesus Christ. So I echo Paul when he says in Philippians 3, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but the one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Listen to Paul here. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. John Stott wrote an amazing book called The Cross of Christ. You should read it. He says, it's impossible to read the New Testament without being impressed by the atmosphere of joyful confidence which pervades it and which stands out in relief to the rather superficial religion that passes for Christianity today. There was no defeatism about the early Christians. They spoke rather of victory. So brothers and sisters, let's live in light of Jesus's victory. Let's live in the Holy Spirit power of his victory. So has his victory, when you look at his cross and his empty tomb, has it actually shattered everything about your life? Has it changed how you think about everything? Because when you look at the depths of the love and the grace of God, how can we be not be brought to our knees in worship? We deserve, I deserve, to be sent away as a wretched sinner like that woman who washed the feet of Jesus, but he embraced her. I deserve the chains and the crucifixion of Barabbas, but Jesus said, take me instead. We all deserve to go to hell, to drink the cup 
of God's wrath against sin. But the good news is that Jesus drank it dry for us. Every single drop of the wrath of God was absorbed by the Son on the cross. That's the atoning work of Jesus. So I pray this morning, may the Father wipe out all of the desires that we have that aren't centered and focused on this king on the cross. So look at him this morning. Look at him walking out of that empty tomb and behold the king, the victorious, supreme, infinitely wise, strong, winsome, graceful, merciful, almighty, unprecedented, limitless king. That's the foundation of this church. He is the reason we do the things that we do. I don't have time for games in life, and neither do you. The reason we come here and we worship and we see the trajectory of increasing holiness and sanctification is all based upon that moment 2,000 years ago, ago when the Son of God fully absorbed the wrath of the Father. And what we saw this morning in Matthew's Gospel is that the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice with a resounding yes. That's the victory and the hope that we have. And now, when you go to the book of Acts and see the day of Pentecost, God has poured out his spirit based upon that sacrifice. And he lives and works in all who belong to Jesus here today. That's the victory. That's what it means to walk in the power of the Spirit. It means to know that all of my righteousness is in Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We confess. We confess that we need you in this moment in response to seeing the sun on the cross. For some of us here, you need to knock the scales off of their eyes. What a tragedy it is when the greatest moment in human history becomes a boring, rote Sunday school lesson. So help us, Father, to feel your affections for us through the atoning work of Jesus. Help us. We're not just a brain on a stick. We're not just intellectual people. We have feelings and emotions, and we ask you, God, to help us to feel your affection for us. May these messages, may the sermons here at this church never be just an intellectual exercise where we learn something new about the Bible, but Spirit, we ask you to move among us. We ask you to supernaturally help us 
grow in gratefulness for what the Son has done on our behalf. To stop seeing ourselves as judge and jury and executioner for everyone in our life. Help us to trust you, Jesus, knowing that you judge justly. And then help us, Spirit, to not be defeated and downtrodden and beat up for no reason. For you, Jesus, are the victorious King. I ask you, Spirit, here to make cheerful, godly disciples. Winsome, grace-filled men and women and children who can love others freely because of the love that's been shown to us. Give us the heartbeat of victory. Help us to walk the path of righteousness. Keep our eyes fixed on the cross and the empty tomb. May the gospel never bore us. Help us in all these things, Spirit. We beg you. We ask all these things in the name of the King who lives and reigns forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.